I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. This time around, we are looking at The Sting. And we as myself, Blaine Dowler, and my co-host, Trey Hooks. How you doing, Trey? Good, Blaine. How are you today? Ah, pretty good. All right. So here we are looking at The Sting, which just to tip our hands maybe a little bit, in the IMDb Top 250 Movies of All Time, it's number 109. Right, so this is directed by George Roy Hill, written by David S. Ward, and it's got a very impressive cast. So our two primary leads are Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Prominent, we also have Robert Shaw, and then we have Charles Durning, Ray Walston, Eileen Brennan, Harold Gould, John Heffernan, Dana Elkar. Jack Kehoe, Robert Earl Jones, who apparently is the father of James Earl Jones, James Sloyan, right, there's no shortage of recognizable names and faces in this. Some possibly because of this. There's a few people whose IMDb really picks up with the sting that seem very recognizable now, but several of them were very well established. This was billed as reuniting the team that gave us the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid with Newman and Redford. So the basic plot, as provided generously by the writers at Wikipedia, in 1936, during the Great Depression, Johnny Hooker, a grifter in Joliet, Illinois, cons 11000 in cash in a pigeon drop from an unsuspecting victim with the aid of his partners, Luther Coleman and Joe Erie. Buoyed by the windfall, Luther announces his retirement and advises Hooker to seek out an old friend, Henry Gondorf, in Chicago to learn the big con. Unfortunately, the reason the victim had so much cash was that he was a numbers racket courier for a vicious crime boss, Doyle Lonigan. Corrupt Juliet Police Lieutenant William Snyder confronts Hooker, revealing Lonigan's involvement and demanding part of Hooker's cut. Having already blown his share on a single roulette spin, Hooker pays Snyder in counterfeit bills. Lonigan's men murder both the courier and Luther, and Hooker flees for his life to Chicago. Hooker finds Henry Gondorf, a once great conman now hiding from the FBI, and asks for his help in taking on the dangerous Lonigan. Gondorf is initially reluctant, but he relents and recruits a core team of experienced con men to dupe Lonigan. They decide to resurrect an elaborate obsolete scam known as the Wire, using a larger crew of con artists to create a phony off-track betting parlor. Aboard the opulent 20th Century Limited, Gondorf, posing as a boorish Chicago bookie Shaw, buys into Lonigan's private high-stakes poker game. He infuriates Lonigan with obnoxious behavior, then out-cheats him to win $15,000. Hooker, posing as Shaw's disgruntled employee Kelly, is sent to collect the winnings and instead convinces Lonigan that he wants to take over Shaw's operation. Kelly reveals that he has a partner named Les Harmon, actually conman Kid Twist, in the Chicago Western Union office, who will allow them to win bets on horse races by past posting. Meanwhile, Snyder has tracked Hooker to Chicago, but his pursuit is thwarted when he is summoned by undercover FBI agents led by Agent Polk, who orders him to assist their plan to arrest Gondorf using Hooker. At the same time, Lonigan has grown frustrated with the inability of his men to find and kill Hooker for the Joliet Con. Unaware that Kelly is Hooker, 
he demands that Salino, his best assassin, be given the job. A mysterious figure with black leather gloves is then seen following and observing Hooker. Kelly's connection appears effective, as Harmon provides Lonigan with the winner of one horse race and the trifecta of another. Lonigan agrees to finance a $500,000 bet at Shaw's parlor to break Shaw and gain revenge. Shortly thereafter, Snyder captures Hooker and brings him before FBI agent Polk. Polk forces Hooker to betray Gondorf by threatening to incarcerate Luther Coleman's widow. The night before the sting, Hooker sleeps with a waitress named Loretta. The next morning, he sees Loretta walking toward him. The black love man appears behind Hooker and shoots her dead. The man reveals that he was hired by Gondorf to protect Hooker. Loretta was Lonigan's hired killer, Loretta Salino, and had not yet killed Hooker because they were seen together. Armed with Harmon's tip to place it on Lucky Dan, Lonigan makes the $500,000 bet at Shaw's parlor on Lucky Dan to win. As the race begins, Harmon arrives and expresses shock at Lonigan's bet. When he said place it, he meant literally that Lucky Dan would place, i.e. finish second. In a panic, Lonigan rushes to the teller window and demands his money back. A moment later, Polk, Lieutenant Snyder, and half a dozen FBI agents storm the parlor. Polk confronts Gondorf, then tells Hooker he is free to go. Gondorf, reacting to the betrayal, shoots Hooker in the back. Polk then shoots Gondorf and orders Snyder to get the ostensibly respectable Lonigan away from the crime scene. With Lonigan and Snyder safely away, Hooker and Gondorf rise amid cheers and laughter. The gunshots were faked. Agent Polk is actually Hickey, a con man, running a con atop Gondorf's con to divert Snyder and ensure Lonigan abandons the money. As the con men strip the room of its contents, Hooker refuses his share of the money, saying, I'd only blow it, and walks away with Gondorf. So that is our summary of The Sting. Yes, and I realized I, I forgot to mention at the top, I know I was, said I was good when we logged on. I'm actually kind of tired. The baby wasn't sleeping well, so neither did anyone else. But I forgot to mention at the top of the podcast, the release date specifically was Christmas Day 1973, December 25th. So this made it just under the wire. <laughs> yeah, I think this is the start of a trend of movies that they expect to do well at the Oscars to be released right at the end of the year. So they're fresh in the memory of the Oscar voters. Maybe not the start, but near the beginning of that trend, which continues to this day because it's proven effective. And it was fairly successful with an estimated budget of five and a half million dollars and an estimated worldwide gross of one hundred and fifty six million dollars. So just a little profitable. Uh, so what is your history with this movie? I don't know, and I know that sounds weird, but I'll, I was born in 75, so I I wasn't alive when this movie came out, but it would have been recent enough that it's... I have a vague memory of this thing, so it would have been recent enough that maybe it could have been on an afternoon or Sunday night movie on television it's possible that it was on cable but what what makes it difficult for me to say is about a decade after this came out they did a sequel kind of with the numbers filed off so i know that i saw a movie very similar to this but i when i was a kid but i couldn't guarantee if it was the sting or if it was the sting too so this may have been the first time that i watched it Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen The Sting 2 recently. I know I've seen both. I couldn't tell you how many times I've seen this movie because my mother is a huge fan of Robert Redford, and my father was a huge fan of Paul Newman. In fact, the first date that they went on was to see Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So this was watched fairly regularly in my home as a child, and it's good enough that I've watched it several times as an adult as well. And it's good that you bring that up because... 
it's not like a sequel or anything to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but that was a big hit in 69, and this was kind of getting the band back together with the same director and the same major stars. Yeah, and some of the early trailers, my mom distinctly remembers the trailer for The Sting saying, you know, this will spoil the endings of both movies, but Paul Newman and Robert Redford are back, only this time they get away with it, which is not the way I would have advertised this movie. Yes and no, because I, you know, I was thinking about it. This isn't the first heist film. Ocean's Eleven predates this. I know you and I both have a fondness for The Killers, which predates this. But, oh, the Killing. Or The yes. Killing, sorry. But it may not be original, but what stands out is, I, I think this is one of the first times when the protagonists get away with it, and I think as cliche as it may sound now, kind of setting up the lovable rogues versus the truly despicable criminals, I I think those two things may be kind of the innovations that this film brought to the genre. It may be, because every character that we meet in this movie is a criminal. (laughs) There, There are no innocents. It's just degrees. So yes, you've got the the minor conmen and grifters who will take all the money you have on your person, but they're not going to put a scratch on you, right? That's Robert Redford and Luther, right? That crew. And then there's Lonigan, who works his way up through the criminal organizations by killing his superiors. So yeah, there there are definitely different degrees here. Well, and if you think of, like, I think when most people today would think of the heist movie, I think most people would think of the Ocean's Eleven series, but the recent Ocean's Eleven series owes more to the Sting than it does the original Ocean's Eleven. You know, mm-hmm. the, they were all veterans from the same military unit, uh, but the George Clooney Brad Pitt film followed this template. We're, we're getting a crew of uh, experienced con men together. Yeah, and one of the other things that I really enjoy about this and why I didn't like the the idea that the marketing tells you that they get away with it is that the audience is told a lot, but not everything. Mm -hmm. So we do see Gondorf say, okay, we're going to have to deal with Snyder somehow, and then that's it. So the first time viewing, you are likely to believe that Polk actually is an FBI agent because his role was to tie up Snyder and to get Lonigan out of there leaving the money behind. So that was all part of the con, which is not explicitly revealed to the audience until they're gone and he goes to tell, you know, um, Hooker, yeah, you can get up now. Well, and I I thought the swerve with Loretta was really effectively done. Yeah, again, you keep seeing the gloved hands, so you figure that's Salino, but no, that's his bodyguard to defend him from Salino, who he had completely misjudged. And, you know, Salino would have killed him if not for that bodyguard. There's no question. So that it, it's kind of amusing that that nosy neighbor across the hall inadvertently saved his life, I think. So yeah, that's, I think, a lot of what this is. I found, uh, especially in my first viewing, it, the, the movie's about two hours and ten minutes, and I found there's two hours where I said, yeah, it's good, but it's the last ten minutes when I went, oh, now I get the best picture great part, because it's how it pulls it all together. And you don't realize how many of these seemingly disparate threads are all tied into the same web until it all comes off in the end. 
And a film like this just really displays the importance of character actors. I mean, don't get me wrong, the the three leads are great, but, uh, you know, Ray Walston and Harold Gould and Eileen Brennan particularly, well, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and throw Charles Durning in that mix, that they make this movie just as much as the leads do. It is. There's, yeah, we have leads, but the supporting cast is a very deep bench, and they all have to pull it off, because part of it is their con men, so you have to see them sometimes playing effectively multiple characters, because they're playing the con man and who the con man is playing. Right. So Harold Gould effectively plays two or three roles. Same with Ray Walston, especially with their their Western Union office where <laughs> right. you know, Shaw goes, you know, when Shaw goes off script and says, no, I want to meet your partner at the Western Union. So they show up as painters, trick the actual Western Union guy out of the office. Harold Gould strips his painter smock and, you know, says, oh, we can't talk here. I'm in the middle of getting my office repainted. Let's go somewhere else. Buzzes the secretary. And by the time the confused secretary, the guy who belonged in the office, come check it out. He and Ray Walston are gone. One wall is half-painted. They've left their stuff behind. But only the stuff that's not important. I really like the attention to detail in this film, because in that scene, Gold makes a point that he puts away the picture of the Western Union executive's family and replaces it with a bogus one. And before they leave, he makes sure to swap the pictures back. Yeah, so they'll leave the tarps and everything, but anything that might lead back to them is gone. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so this is... To modern audiences, it might feel, I think, a a little slow-paced with the editing, but it's a masterclass in structure because there is nothing here that doesn't matter. Yeah. Not to mention the first meeting between Gondorf and uh, Robert Redford's character where... Gondorf reveals, yeah, he's been on the run from the feds, which makes Polk coming in as FBI plausible because they set that up. And Polk getting to Hooker through Luther's widow, saying, yeah, we've got enough to tie her up unless you give us Gondorf. So it really makes you think, especially with their jitters the night before, you could easily interpret those jitters as guilt. It makes it really easy for the audience to believe that he's going to betray Gondorf for the sake of Luther's widow. That also goes to how tight the screenplay is, because David Ward sets that up. So after they unknowingly cheat Lonigan's runner, for lack of a better word, when Luther and Hooker are dividing up the money, Luther's wife talks about the small-time jobs that they've pulled in the past. So it's established she was a con man as well. Mm-hmm. So later when Polk and Snyder say that they've got enough to lean on her and make Luther's widow miserable, that's th- the script sets that up nicely. It does, yeah. And this was only uh, David S. Ward's second Hollywood script. He's got 15 writing credits and some are just character credits for sequels to films he wrote. Honestly, looking at his filmography, he strikes me as a guy who peaked early. He went Steelyard Blues, then The Sting, both in 1973. Next job was Cannery Row in 82, The Sting 2 in 83. And then he goes, you know, Major League, King Ralph, and Sleepless in Seattle are probably his next three big ones. So, and I would say, I don't know, Sleepless in Seattle isn't great, but it's the strongest film he's done besides The Sting. I kind of liked that, and this isn't going to be 
perfect one, but I'm kind of I kind of like that Newman and Redford swapped a little bit between this and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, because I felt like Butch Cassidy was the main antagonist in Butch Cassidy or protagonist, sorry, in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and uh, Sundance was a big part. It was a fully realized character, but he was more of the sidekick. Here, Gondorf's not the sidekick. He's kind of the new mentor figure, but Hooker's definitely the main protagonist. We always stay with Hooker in this film. And I kind of like that swap up. Because mm-hmm. you do get to see the same actors, but in different roles with different focuses. Yeah, yeah, we, we certainly see that. So yes, they, we do have a little bit of that role reversal. And Shaw is Lonigan. What a couple of years he's about to have. But, I mean, I, oh, he was so good in this. Yeah, he, he was pitch perfect. So, especially the... He had a spot-on Irish accent for not being Irish, either. Mm. He was actually born in England. But, yeah, he's, he had quite the career. Although, a lot of it, he was a working actor. It goes back to 1947. He was in The Dam Busters, which is known now for basically having its ending stolen shot for shot for Star Wars. He was... I'd say From Russia with Love might have been his next big one. We saw him in A Man for All Seasons. Yep. And then from there, his next big one is The Sting. He's got a little-known shark movie coming up. <laughs> yeah, coming after this, we've got The Taking of Pella 1, 2, 3. We've got Jaws. So, The Deep. Yeah, he he's working steadily. And actually, his last film comes out in 1979, because he passed away at age 51 in 1978. So, but yeah, he was one of the good ones. But this, I would say this is one of those movies. It, it's tough when you get a twist ending because if it's done correctly, you should have three different enjoyable filming experiences. And this is one of those movies that gets you that. So it's the first time through when ideally you don't even know that there is a twist and you're seeing it and you're enjoying it and you've fallen for it. And then you can watch it a second time and look for the clues that there is the twist, which are there. So you say, okay, yes, that twist does make sense. And then the third time through, when you're familiar with all of it, you can just sit down and admire how it works together. And The Sting is one of those movies that works all three ways. Yeah. Not all movies with twist endings do that, especially the ones where the twist is not properly set up and it just feels like a cheat. Yeah, I I really think the only thing that hurts The Sting now is its age. And I... I don't mean that it hasn't aged well like it's irrelevant or anything, but I think this is one of those kind of progenitor films that maybe is not recognized as much as it should be because there are more recent films that have made splashes that have that have aped it. So, you know, if you've already, you know, we mentioned the Ocean's Eleven series. If you've already seen the Ocean's Eleven series or films like Sneakers, then this is going to seem uh, old hat to you, but this is it kind of being done first here. Yeah, it'd be kind of like how the John Carter movie was poorly received. I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard it is actually well made. It is. But I just know it was it was poorly received because a lot of people walked out going, oh, that's all cliches, not realizing all those cliches started in the John Carter novels. Exactly. And were, were mimicked elsewhere. Or, or you know... um, if you grew up on the Three Stooges and then someone watches 
Keaton and Lloyd and thinks, well, they're just copying the Three Stooges. Well, no, Keaton and Lloyd invented a lot of what the Stooges and Abbott and Costello and others after them would do. So mm-hmm. it's just who you see first is kind of what imprints on you. Yeah, that is entirely possible. And I can't really speak to how well that works because I, as I said, I, I was familiar with this long before I saw the Ocean's Eleven movies. Still haven't seen the original. I've only seen the remakes, which I don't know. I found that I like this better than that Ocean's Eleven remake with George Clooney because that one, there's a couple of points that require, their plan requires the Vegas security people to make mistakes. Yeah. And this does not do that, right? I, I think you would like the original Ocean's Eleven just because of how much you like the killing. It they're sim- I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil it for you, but they're similar films, and I'll just leave it at that. Okay. I might get around to checking it out. So should we go through all the winners and nominees for the year? All right, so the 46th Annual Academy Awards were presented on Tuesday, April 2nd, 1974, hosted by Burt Reynolds, Diana Ross, John Huston, and David Niven. Uh, it was directed by Marty Pacetta, and this was the year when there was the streaker who ran across the stage making a peace sign, and David Niven responded by, you know, talking about how, oh, nice, he's confident enough to come out and, and reveal all of his shortcomings. Uh, Best Picture obviously went to The Sting, beating out American Graffiti, Cries and Whispers, The Exorcist, and A Touch of Class. Best Director went to George Roy Hill for The Sting, beating out George Lucas for American Graffiti. Yes, Lucas did once get a Best Director Oscar nomination. Uh, He also beat out Ingmar Bergman for Cries and Whispers, William Friedkin for The Exorcist, and Bernardo Bertolucci for Last Tango in Paris. Best Actor went to Jack Lemmon for Save the Tiger beating out Marlon Brando for Last Tango in Paris, Jack Nicholson for The Last Detail, Al Pacino for Serpico, and Robert Redford for The Sting. Best Actress went to Glenda Jackson for A Touch of Class, beating out Ellen Burstein for The Exorcist, Marsha Mason for Cinderella Liberty, Barbara Streisand for The Way We Were, and Joanne Woodward for Summer Wishes, Winter Dreams. Best Supporting Actor went to John Hausman for The Paper Chase, beating out Vincent Gardenia for Bang the Drum Slowly, Jack Guilford for Save the Tiger, Jason Miller for The Exorcist, and Randy Quaid for The Last Detail. Best Supporting Actress went to Tatum O'Neill for Paper Moon, beating out Linda Blair for The Exorcist, Candy Clark for American Graffiti, Madeline Kahn for Paper Moon, and Sylvia Sidney for Summer Wishes Winter Dreams. Best Story and Screenplay Based on Factual Material or Material Not Previously Produced or Published. That went to The Sting and David S. Ward, beating out American Graffiti, Cries and Whispers, Save the Tiger and A Touch of Class. Best screenplay based on material from another medium went to The Exorcist, beating out The Last Detail, The Paper Chase, Paper Moon, and Serpico. Best foreign language film went to Day for Night, beating out The House on Chalouche Street, L'Invitation, The Pedestrian, and Turkish Delight. Best documentary went to The Great American Cowboy, beating out Always a New Beginning, Battle of Berlin, Journey to the Outer Limits, and Walls of Fire. Best Documentary Short Subject went to Princeton, A Search for Answers, beating out Background, Christo's Valley Curtain, Four Stones for Kenimitsu, and Pasty Agobert. Best Live Action Short Subject went to The Bolero, beating out Clockmaker and Lifetimes 9. Best Animated Short Subject went to Frank Film, beating out The Legend of John Henry and uh, 
Pulcinella. Best original dramatic score went to The Way We Were, beating out Cinderella Liberty by John Williams, The Day of the Dolphin, Papillon by Jerry Goldsmith, and A Touch of Class. Best scoring original song score or adaptation, that went to The Sting, adapted by Marvin Hamlish, beating out Jesus Christ Superstar and Tom Sawyer. It's actually worth noting that all the music in The Sting was originally composed by Scott Joplin and was just adapted to it. So it's like Singing in the Rain, except they didn't have to buy the rights because they were in the public domain. Best song went to the title track from The Way We Were, beating out All That Love Went to Waste from A Touch of Class, the title track from Live and Let Die, Love from Robin Hood, and You're So Nice to Be Around from Cinderella Liberty. So John Williams got a second nomination in this year. Best costume design went to The Sting and Edith Head, beating out Cries and Whispers, Ludwig, Tom Sawyer, and The Way We Were. Best Sound went to The Exorcist, beating out Day of the Dolphin, The Paper Chase, Paper Moon, and The Sting. Best Art Direction went to The Sting, beating out Brother, Son, Sister, Moon, The Exorcist, Tom Sawyer, and The Way We Were. Best Cinematography went to Cries and Whispers, beating out The Exorcist, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, The Sting, and The Way We Were. And Best Film Editing went to The Sting, beating out American Graffiti, Day of the Jackal, The Exorcist, and John Livingston Seagull. So, summing it up with the statistics, the films with multiple nominations were The Sting and The Exorcist tied for 10 each, The Way We Were with 6, American Graffiti, Cries and Whispers, and A Touch of Class for 5, Paper Moon for 4, Cinderella Liberty, The Last Detail, The Paper Chase, Save the Tiger, and Tom Sawyer each with 3, and two nominations each for Day of the Dolphin, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, Last Tango in Paris, Serpico, and Summer Wishes, Summer Dreams. The multiple award winners, The Sting took home seven, and The Exorcist and The Way We Were each took home two. So that is the summary of the nominees and winners for the year. Before we talk about whether we agreed with it or not, just a few other things that I'll add that were kind of unique about this ceremony. When... Tatum O'Neill won. She became the youngest actor to win, and I don't believe that's been beaten yet. I thought maybe Anna Paquin did it in 94 with the piano, but Anna Paquin was 11 and Tatum O'Neill was 10. So I think she's still the youngest recipient. Yeah, the other notable evidence or other notable events on the Wikipedia page does say that, yes, she's, she's still, it's a feat unmatched to this day, it says. And Catherine Hepburn appeared to present the Irving Falberg Award, and I think that's the first time she had attended the ceremony. Anytime she was nominated or won, she always had someone else except... Anytime she won, she always had somebody else except on her behalf. She she typically didn't believe in going to accept the awards. Mm-hmm. And then the, the last one is Marvin Hamlish won three Oscars in the same year. And he didn't do it in any of the big five. So as a composer, that's mm-hmm. that's that's pretty rare and a neat little hat trick. Yeah. And another one about the ages on the Wikipedia article, it also says that with Tatum O'Neill being 10 and John Hausman being 71, this is the biggest age gap ever for two winning actors. All right. So do you have any other comments on which movies won and and didn't win? No, American Graffiti is another one I need to rewatch. I haven't seen it since I was a kid, so I don't remember enough to comment. Is there a world in which The Exorcist could have beat The Sting? I don't know. Yeah, looking at these, the one that jumps out at me is Cries and Whispers 
being submitted in the major categories rather than in the foreign language film. I haven't seen this particular Bergman film, but every film I've seen by Bergman is phenomenal. So I should get to Cries and Whispers. I mean, I love The Seventh Seal, you know, The Virgin Spring, Wild Strawberries. He has delivered every time I've watched his stuff. So I, I get why they felt it was a contender. I think they maybe should have gone the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon route and submitted it in both categories because it wasn't nominated for Best Foreign Language, but it did make Best Picture. So you'd think mm-hmm. it, it could have walked home with Best Foreign Language at least. As for the rest, for the five nominees, I have seen three. So I've seen The Sting and The Exorcist and American Graffiti. While I enjoy American Graffiti, I was surprised it was nominated. It, it's a pleasant two hours, but it didn't strike me as a best picture two hours. So I think that, yeah, it really came down to The Sting and The Exorcist. And personally, I think they made the right choice. But it's close enough to call that had they gone with The Exorcist, I would not have been at all upset. Yeah, The Exorcist was transformative for the horror genre. I just, I think there's a fair argument to make. You know, you you talked about earlier about how absolutely everything that was in this thing needed to be there. I, I think there's an argument to be made that from a technical craft perspective, if not entertainment perspective that may be where the sting edges out the exorcist i i I think in terms of recognition um, factor and where people place it you know in the overall sense of film i think when we look at imdb and letterbox i think exorcist is going to beat the sting but i think maybe on technical craft the sting justifiably wins the oscar this year okay well, we'll check that prediction in a bit. First, we'll run through the 31st Annual Golden Globes. Unless you had more to say about the Oscars. Nope. All right. So, again, Golden Globes split by by category. So their best motion picture drama went to The Exorcist, beating out Cinderella Liberty, Day of the Jackal, The Last Tango in Paris, Save the Tiger, and Serpico. For best comedy or musical, American Graffiti beat out Jesus Christ Superstar, Paper Moon, Tom Sawyer, and A Touch of Class. Note that the sting was not nominated. Yeah, I mean, I get it. Like, I don't really feel like the sting is a drama, so I get it not being there. But I think you could kind of half position it as a comedy, maybe. So, like, I don't yeah. know why Tom Sawyer would have been nominated and not it, or even Jesus Christ Superstar. I, I, I completely get Paper Moons nomination i haven't seen a touch of class but obviously there was something about it for it to be uh be nominated from an oscar perspective but do you think this is one of those weird things to where the sting maybe in the golden globes mind didn't fit either category that's what i'm thinking it might have been a little hard to classify so it might have split the vote across the categories Uh, for best performance in a drama actor went to al pacino for serpico beating out robert blake jack lemon steve mcqueen and jack nicholson an actress went to Marsha Mason for Cinderella Liberty, beating out Ellen Bernstein, Barbara Streisand, Elizabeth Taylor, and Joanne Woodward. For best performance in a motion picture comedy or musical, actor went to George Siegel for Touch of Class, beating out Carl Anderson, Richard Dreyfus, uh, Ted Neely, and Ryan O'Neill. And best actress went to Glenda Jackson for a Touch of Class, beating out Yvonne Elliman, Cloris Leachman, Tatum O'Neill, and Liv Ullman. Ah. Best Supporting Performance, where they combine the categories. 
uh, supporting actor went to John Hausman for The Paper Chase, beating out Martin Balsam, Jack Guilford, Randy Quaid, and Max von Sydow. And supporting actress went to Linda Blair for The Exorcist, beating out Valentina Cortese, Madeline Kahn, Kate Reed, and Sylvia Sidney. Interesting that they bumped Tatum O'Neill up to the actress category. Yeah. So for their other awards, Best Director, William Friedkin for The Exorcist, beat out Bernardo Bertolucci, Peter Bogdanovich, George Lucas, and Fred Zinneman. Best Screenplay went to The Exorcist, beating out Cinderella Liberty, Day of the Jackal, The Stink, and A Touch of Class. Original Score went to Jonathan Livingston Siegel, beating out Breezy, Cinderella Liberty, Day of the Dolphin, O Lucky Man, and Tom Sawyer. Best Original Song went to The Way We Were, title track from that movie. Beating Out All That Love Went to Waste, Breezy Song from Breezy, Lonely Looking Sky from Jonathan Livingston Siegel, Rosa Rosa from Casablan, and Send a Little Love My Way from Oklahoma Crude. So they agree on the winner, but not much else in that category. Best Foreign Film went to The Pedestrian, Beating Out Alfredo Alfredo, Day for Night, Casablan, and State of Siege. Best Documentary Film went to Visions of Eight, Beating Out Love, The Movies That Made Us, The Second Gun, and What Stacks. New Star of the Year Actor went to Paul Lamott for American Graffiti, beating out Carl Anderson, Robbie Benson, Kirk Calloway, and Ted Neely. New Star of the Year Actress Tatum O'Neill won for Paper Moon, beating out Linda Blair, Kay Lenz, Michelle Phillips, and Barbara Siegel. Television Awards Best Drama Series went to The Waltons, beating out Canon, Columbo, Hawkins, Mannix, and Police Story. Best Series Comedy or Musical went to All in the Family, beating out Carol Burnett Show, Mary Tyler Moore Show, Sanford and Son, and The Sunny and Cher Comedy Hour. A Best Actor in a Drama Series went to James Stewart for Hawkins, beating out David Carradine, Mike Connors, Peter Falk, Richard Young, and Rob or Richard Thomas, sorry, and Robert Young. Best Actress in a Drama went to Lee Remick, beating out Michael Leonard, or Michael Learned, Julie London, Emily McLaughlin, and Susan St. James. Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical went to Jack Klugman for The Odd Couple, beating out Alan Alda, Don DeLuise, Red Fox, and Carol O'Connor. Best Actress in a Comedy or Musical series was a tie between Cher for The Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour and Gene Stapleton for All in the Family, and they beat out B. Arthur for Maud, Carol Burnett for her show, and Mary Tyler Moore for her show. Best Supporting Actor went to McLean Stevenson for MASH, beating out Ed Asner, Will Gear, Harvey Corman, Strother Martin, and Rob Reiner, and Best Supporting Actress went to Ellen Colby, or Corby for The Waltons, beating out Gail Fisher, Valerie Harper, Sally Struthers, and Loretta Swit. So, do you have any comments further on the Golden Globes? Nope. I always enjoy seeing shows listed that I've never heard of before, like Lots of Luck. Yeah, and all these new breakout star of the year, where I don't recognize the names, and Wikipedia doesn't even have a little photo for them in there. Yeah, the only one I know is Robbie Benson, <laughs> and what he's most known for, for most people, is not a face role, it's voiceover. He's the Beast from Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Okay. Yeah, I'm having, honestly, a hard time placing Paul Lamont having seen American Graffiti as well. So, that was known for making stars, but just looking it up here quickly, so the cast on that is Richard Dreyfus. Ron Howard, Paul Lamott, Charles Martin Smith, Cindy Williams, Candy Clark, Mackenzie Phillips, Wolfman Jack, Bo Hopkins, Manuel Padilla Jr., Harrison Ford, Lynn Marie Stewart, Terry McGovern, Catherine Quinlan, Scott Beach, Susan Richardson, K.N. Kemper, Joe Spano, Deborah Lee Scott, and Suzanne Summers. 
I went to his IMDb DB page and they had a picture, so I know who he is now based off of the his IMDb page. But yeah, I don't know if I've seen his murder she wrote yet. We're on the rewatch and we're in season eight. So yeah, if he was in 1988, I should have seen him by now. But again, not placing him. But anyway, this is not the Paul Lamont podcast. So shall we run through how movies stack up on IMDb and Letterboxd? Yes. So IMDb, the first nominee for the year, came in at number three. So number one is My Dear Brother, and number two is Truckers, uh, neither of which were English language films. And then the third highest rated film of the year is The Sting. Okay. Uh, number four is Ivan Vasilyevich changes his profession, followed by Paper Moon at five, The Exorcist at six, and Papillon for seven, and it's down from there. So you'd have to scroll pretty far, I think, to find all the nominees. Going to Letterboxd. So again, by the time we find the first nominee on the list, we're at number 15 for the year, and it is The Sting. Wow, okay. The next highest rated nominee is The Exorcist at number 26. So I was wrong. (laughs) I think had we had these tools been available in, say, 1980, you might have been right. But I do think The Sting, it it has aged, but I think it's aged better than The Exorcist. And I think for a lot of the same reasons, they both really established their genre and changed the genre from that point on. But both of those genres have expanded, so the new audiences may not see them as favorably, but I think The Exorcist might be heard a little more than The Sting. Although, apparently The Sting has a better sequel. Um, After listening to the discussion of The Exorcist on Is It Jaws, when they were wondering if any franchise... It was actually The Exorcist 2 they were talking about. Mm -hmm. And Paul was wondering if any franchise has fallen so far so fast, and I looked into it, and I think he's correct that The Exorcist franchise was the one that, that... had the biggest quality gap between them. Because The Exorcist is also in the IMDb top 250 films of all time. Yeah, right now it's number 226 in their top 250 films of all time, while The Exorcist 2 is in the bottom 100, and it's the only franchise to have entries in both lists. So I I believe Paul was correct that no other franchise has fallen so far so fast. The Sting 2 was a weird was a weird creature. They changed... The last names stayed the same, but they changed the first names of Gondorf and Hooker. None of the cast... uh, None of the cast came back. But you still had a fairly strong cast. The, The character of Donegan returns, but it's Oliver Reed instead of Robert Shaw... Because Robert Shaw, you know, obviously had passed away by that point. Jackie Gleason's playing the Paul Newman role, which had to be very different. But, you know, I I still think Jackie Gleason's a fine comedic actor. I, I get the feeling that from, and again, I don't remember if that's when I saw or not, but just reading a little bit about it, I get the feeling it was more of a precursor to something like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. To where with Terry Gar, they kind of add a third main female grifter into the mix. Because while Eileen Brennan in this was supportive of Gondorf, I didn't really get the feeling that she was a grifter herself. No, she was a madam. Yeah. I I know I've seen this thing too. I don't think my parents saw it in theaters. I think when it came out on the home video, they watched it just because they liked this thing. 
didn't see it in theaters because again, you're right, no Robert Redford, no Paul Newman, and so that was that would have been the big draw, but not enough without Newman and Redford. It wasn't enough of a draw for them to arrange babysitters for my sister and I to go see it when I was six and my sister was eight, because those would have been our ages when it came out. So I, I think they rented it, and that's really all I remember is that I did see the sequel after seeing the original, and it just. I don't even know if I sat through the whole thing or if I just left and went to do something else. Because I remember it was not on the same level. I don't think it's as bad as The Exorcist 2, obviously. Or... Right. But yeah, by your description, because my memory is t- too vague for that, but it sounds it's a sequel like Grease 2 was a sequel. Yes, exactly. Dee Dee Cohn and all of the teachers are still there, but everybody else is new. <laughs> Which, at least for Grease, it's fair. Yeah, it's a high school. Right, so if you set right. it more than four years later... <laughs> No, that that that's very true, but but and I know Michael Bailey will agree with me on this one. The the drop off between Greece and Greece Two is not like the drop off between Exorcist and Exorcist Two. I have fondness for Greece Two as well. So at the very least, it's got Michelle Pfeiffer. So mm-hmm. as much as she, yeah, she considers it one of her her worst films, and it might be one of her worst films overall. But it got her foot in the door. So one of those cases where. Yeah, it may be a bad movie, but she's not the reason the movie is bad. She's not, and I, her, I, I think her worst performance, and I'm not saying it's a bad performance, right? So when I say worse, you know, less than, is probably in her debut film, Hollywood Nights, which is relevant only because, you know, American Graffiti probably kind of kicked off that late 50s, early 60s, you know, however, that 50s, 60s, nostalgic phase that became big in the 70s into the early 80s you know Greece was a part of that and a few other films were as well so I I think that was probably I think that was probably American Graffiti's hook was it was for it was probably the first nostalgic look back film for a certain generation yeah that that I can see so do we have any closing thoughts on the sting before we tell people what to expect next month no, just it's it's a great movie. You should definitely you should definitely watch it. If you're a fan of heist films and you haven't seen it, go watch it. Even though we spoiled some things because that's just the nature of our show. Mm-hmm. I, I still think you'll enjoy it and have a good time. Yeah, I, I talked about the three possible viewing experiences. If you haven't seen it yet, you could still enjoy the last two. Yeah, yeah, it it is enjoyable. I know we haven't talked about sort of the, the parental position for a while, which is weird because we were doing that consistently before I was a parent. But this, there's some very minor language. You know, there's some implied things like Johnny Hooker knocks on Loretta's door at 2 a.m. and she invites him in. And then he wakes up in her bed. Things like this. So, you know, it's not necessarily for a five-year-old, but they lean heavily on implied rather than explicit. So it's, you could watch it with children that are younger than you might think about a bunch of criminals who sometimes sleep around. Yeah, it, it's one of those, like, you know, when I remember growing up, I, I would have watched a film like this and not know what being a madam meant and not know what Eileen Brennan's real job was in this film. Could you see her serving drinks? Okay, she's a bartender. I mean, you, you, you know. Uh, there, there's nothing salacious going on at her 
in the few bits and scenes that are said at her brothel at all. So, I mean... I remember being confused when she takes a step back to knock on a door and say time, and then keeps on walking. As a child, I didn't know that she was telling someone, yeah, your time is up, that's all the time you've paid for, get out. So, yeah, but again, that's that's as close as it gets. It's one of those things where, if you don't already know what her job is, you're not going to be corrupted, you're going to be confused. Because the information that they give you is, it's enough for people who already know the job to understand what's happening. But if you don't, you're not going to have enough to put the pieces together. Yeah. Again, yes, that's easy to recommend. So, should we talk about next year after our conversation of interesting sequels? Yes, Blaine, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. We'll be talking about The Godfather 2 as we return to the Corleone family saga. Yes, which was nominated against Chinatown, The Conversation, Lenny, and The Towering Inferno. So there's... Two of the films I've seen, one I'm quite familiar with because I've seen it multiple times, but uh, The Godfather Part 2 is not one of them, so I'll be watching that for the first time for next month's podcast. Yes, and anybody out there who's listening and watching along, just a reminder, I don't think it'll impact anyone's viewing pleasure, but Blaine and I tried to review these as they were released to the theater so that's the version we're going to be watching. There are a couple of different other cuts out there. Just be aware if you're watching along and want to watch the version we plan on talking about, it's going to be the theatrical version. And in another sort of informational piece, if you also like watching the other nominees for the comparison element, know that Chinatown is directed by Roman Polanski. So there are debates about whether or not the art should be completely separated from the artist, or whether there are things an artist can do in their personal lives that should result in boycott of their art. If you believe there are lines that can be crossed which result in boycott at all, Polanski's on the list, even if you don't already know why. So, just a heads up, I the only Polanski film I have seen is Rosemary's Baby, which was a very well-made film, to the point that as soon as it was done, I dialed into the university modem pool and ran his name through Webcrawler to try and find out what other movies by this guy I could see and learn about the person and have chosen not to watch his films again. But again, personal choice. Just know that the choice is there. And and since we won't probably go into it or cover it at all um, next month, if viewers are curious about what Blaine's uh, referring to, just remember this did a whole series on the Manson murders, and because of his late wife, um, Sharon Tate being one of the victims, she did a couple of episodes that were a pretty lengthy profile of Roman Polanski, and she goes into some of the issues that Blaine's talking about. So if you want to know more, I'd refer you over to that podcast. Yeah, that's, uh, you must remember this. Blanking on the woman who does it, she does an incredible job. Katrina Longworth, is that her last name? Yes. Yes, the Longworth was the part I was confident in. Oh, Karina was what I was getting for the first name, but it didn't sound right. And speaking of which, her most recent season at the time of this recording, which is the first of two runs on Erotica in Hollywood, does touch on the last tango in Paris. Okay. Which was a prominent one in the, uh, in 1973. We've got a lot of nominations here. I'm almost there. Blaine knows this, and some of our listeners may know this. 
I, I have what I like to call John Wilson disease. I have to watch watch and listen to things in order, even when it's not like necessary to understand. So I'm I'm almost done with her series on Luella Parsons and Hedda Harper. So I'm I'm almost caught up. Okay. But anyway, yes, please join us next month for The Godfather Part 2. And thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.